Psalm 119. We continue this journey not only in the Word of God, but in this particular psalm. Well, we hiked from the trailhead to Upper Crystal Lake on Mount Rainier. And it had a profound impact on me. This was many, many years ago. Cheryl remembers. I think we both still have a few aches and pains from that hiking trek. We covered eight miles in a single day up switchbacks and and crossing rivers and around fallen trees and over slopes of slippery shale. It was an amazing, amazing hike. And I can recall different stops along the way, and I see it almost as clearly today as the day we went. And every few feet, it seems, there was a vista to look out or a view or something amazing just to, just to be in awe over. But our, our guide, who was my youth deacon at the time, a helper of mine, Rich, an outdoorsman, he kept us moving. And he, he kept saying, we found a beautiful pool and we swam in it for a little while, and then he said, guys, we've got to keep going. We've got another seven miles. We have another six miles. We've got to get to the campsite in time to get to, to make camp before nightfall. So he kept us moving, and we kept wanting to stop, and he kept us moving. And, and that experience, right at the very front end of my, of my whole ministry career, impacted me and has become for me a metaphor of sorts for Bible study. I often think of that experience when I, when I come to the Word. And, and here's what I mean. There are so many awe-inspiring views and vistas along the way, pools that we can swim in as we're studying verse by verse through the Word of God. And yet, we have a destination. And we have a place that we need to reach by nightfall, and so we press on. And one of the things that the Lord has put on my heart from the beginning of the bridge was to press on. And to keep moving through. There are times people say, Rick, why don't you slow it down and do a little less? And sometimes I will do that if the, if the Lord encourages. Sometimes we need to just stop and sit for a moment on one verse and look at the beauty of what is around us. But at the same time, I believe the Lord is calling us to the high meadow. And I have a goal in, in my heart and my mind that we'll have the entire Bible, should the Lord tarry. We'll have the whole Bible available to people online. The whole thing, having studied through it. And I've made a promise to myself and to others that once we've done that, when we go back to start over in Genesis, we may spend the next two years on verse 1 of Genesis chapter 1. But if someone says, well, why don't we move more quickly through the Word? At that point, I'll say, just go online. It's right there for you. But we have a destination, and we continue to move. Another way to look at it is this. Well... Well, I love the scriptural scenery. I'm really more of a tour guide than I am a teacher. My role is to point things out and to keep us moving on the tour. Kind of like the Israel tour, which I'm going to be announcing on Sunday. We're going to have an informational meeting. It's coming up soon. A year from March is the actual departure date, and I'll tell you more about that. But like that tour, there's so much to see that truly if you're going to go one time in your life, you've got to see as much as possible. If you go a second time, you can slow it down. But there's so much that you need to move through and just get a sense of the the whole land. Well, that's what it's like when we get into the Word. And I'm more tour guide than teacher because the reality is we have a teacher, and it's not me. We have a rabbi. I'm not him. In fact, our rabbi said in Matthew 23, verse 8, Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher. And you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. Do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, and that is Christ. And Jesus said that. 
about Himself. He is our rabbi. He's our teacher. He's our father. He's our leader. He is our Christ. And so all that to say, my great hope for our times together, when we sit down, when we open the Word and get into it together, is that each and every one of us will be encouraged to go back and stop at the vistas during the week. To go back with Christ, our teacher, our rabbi, and say, Lord, something that, that was shared on Wednesday night or something in that passage, I just I, I want to understand better and open it and go to it and ask Him, would you be my teacher in this? Because Rick didn't explain it all that well. And I need you, Lord, to show me, to give me understanding and to give me clarity. Now you may remember last week we began Psalm 119 and the opening word of the psalm back there in verse 1 is blessed. Blessed, ashar in the Hebrew. Which means blessed, but it also means to make progress. And so we're going to continue on tonight and make progress in the Word, remembering that our true rabbi is Jesus, and He is available at any time, day or night, through the week, to come back with you to places you need to spend time in and to teach you. We left off this remarkable psalm. We recognized on last Wednesday and on Sunday the organization of it, that it's alphabetical. Every eight verses is a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, begins each line of those eight verses, 22 octaves or eight verse segments in all, eight verse stanzas. And we outlined the first 12 so far of these 22 eight verse stanzas. And let me just remind you, if you forgot, the first stanza under Aleph is the word of progression. That the word helps us to make progress in the blessings of God and in learning and understanding the language of faith, which is God's desire for us. So the first is progress. The second stanza under Beth, we identified as the word of purification. That the word has this purifying approach or purifying impact on us as we study and read through it. The third one under Gamel is perception. The word gives us A perception, a a revelation really in verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Number four, under Delet, is the word of my power. He says down in verse 28, strengthen me according to your word. He says down in verse 32, I shall run the way of your commandments for you will enlarge my heart. The word gives us power and strength to journey forward. Number five, the word of our provision. Of our provision there, heck, that stanza under heck, going on down and, and talking about the provision of the Lord or the way that the Word brings us provision. And how he says in verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. I don't need to worry about it. I don't need to have stress or strive over any provision in this life because God's Word will provide. God Himself is our great provider, our provision. And then, of course, under Bob, the next stanza, my proclamation. As the psalmist begins to proclaim joyfully his salvation in the Lord. Under Zayin, my perseverance. Remember the word, verse 49, to your servant, in which you have made me hope. And this is my comfort and affliction that your word has revived me. My perseverance. I persevere. And the word brings me along the pilgrimage and gives me strength to persevere. Heth, verse 57, on, and following those eight verses, my portion. Where the psalmist talks about my portion is not the Word of God, but my portion is the Lord. God Himself. The Lord Himself. And down under Teth, which is the ninth stanza, my prudence. 
Prudence. The word of prudence. The word of discernment and understanding. The word brings that to us. Prudence. Wise decision making and discernment. Yod, which is the tenth stanza, my patience. As he says in verse 74, may those who fear you be glad, those who fear you see me and be glad because I wait for your word. And the word teaches that, that patience. Calf, down in verse 81, my persecution. As he says, my soul languishes for your salvation. I wait for your word. I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Did you like that on Sunday? I didn't tell him what it meant. <laughs> See, there's benefit. You get benefits being here. So, just share that with you all. And if you weren't here last week, you're just going to have to ask around. I'm not going to share that again. Permanence. We talked about the 12 stanza on Sunday. The word of my, my permanence. Literally, that the word is settled in heaven... Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Now with that background, we're just going to keep pressing on through in the 13th stanza. We're going to pick it up there, Mem. Mem is the letter that begins each one of these verses if we were reading it in Hebrew. But this is the word of perspective. Perspective. Watch this, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. See, there he is, our rabbi. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. The word of perspective. What is your perspective on God's word? I love how the psalmist here, and again, I believe it's David. In fact, I think through the teaching last week and on Sunday, I just, I just assumed David. I probably shouldn't do that. Uh, by the way, unless the word absolutely tells us who the author is or who's speaking, I probably shouldn't jump ahead of it, but I still think it's David writing this. However, we'll say, to be biblically correct, the psalmist here says, Oh, how I love your law. Well, that just jumped off the page. I stopped right there as I was studying. Oh, how I love your law. And you know, I do. I just, I just love the Word of God. I love teaching it, I love studying it, I love being in it, and it's been a lifetime of coming to that place. I didn't always, I didn't always get it. And I don't even understand it now like I hope to, should the Lord tarry, in ten years. But oh, how I love thy law. Spurgeon says, the psalmist speaks not of his knowing, or his reading, or his hearing, or his speaking, or outward practicing of the law, but of love to the law. And this is more than all the former. All the former... He says, may be without love to the Word. In other words, you can know, read, hear, speak, and practice the Word and not love it. But, he says, to love the Word, that cannot happen without all the former. Love is the principal affection of knowing, reading, hearing, speaking, and outwardly practicing God's Word. All those come because of love. And yet you don't love the Lord and His Word without those things without knowing and reading and hearing and speaking and practicing the word itself. In these eight verses, the psalmist, having gone low in the midnight of the psalm and come out of it, he recognizes the vastly greater perspective 
that lovers of God's Word have over everybody else. In fact, he picks three people groups to give as example. He says there in verse 88, he says, Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. Wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. Literally, for they are ever with me. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. Why? Because they're always with me. I always have the Word with me. And because of that, I'm wiser. How does that work? Well, the Word. King, the commandments of God are stable in the storm. They're solid in the onslaught or the attack. They provide a permanence in persecution. Therefore, the psalmist can say, His commandments make me wiser than my enemies. You know, the enemies of the Gospel have tried to write their own books. Anton LaVey, does that word name sound familiar? 1966, founded the Church of Satan. And of course, if you're going to found a church, you've got to have a Bible. So he wrote the Satanic Bible. Which cracks me up because it's literally called the Satanic Bible. He couldn't even come up with his own name for the book. But he wrote it as, as a text, as a guide of individualism and materialism and Satanism for the people who would follow his teachings and his satanic practices. Well, he died in 1997 of pulmonary edema, which means you're coughing up blood and your lungs stop working and you are unable to breathe and, and so he died. And I just don't see or hear a lot of comfort from people quoting the satanic Bible. No, no. His commandments make me wiser than all my enemies. They can have their books, but their books are filled with the writings, at best, the writings of man. At worst, at worst, the inspiration of the demonic. But they are not full of the wisdom of God. Only this book. This book alone. His testimonies, he says, going on there, he says, I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I love that. His testimonies make me more insightful than my teachers. Why? How is that possible? Because the psalmist says, your testimonies are my meditation. This is what I was talking about as I began tonight. There is something that you have with the Lord and His Word. You cannot get here on Wednesday night or Sunday morning. And that is meditation in the Word of God with the lead and the teaching of the Holy Spirit Himself. Oh, oh, the Holy Spirit, I believe, leads and teaches us here when we gather together and as we open the Word. But truly, even if we wanted to just sit on each Word, you know, for half an hour, we would run out of time. We only have so much time on a Wednesday night, so much time on a Sunday morning to, to go through the Word. And so the psalmist, he's right on target. He says, your testimonies are my meditation, so I have more insight than my teachers. My teachers can give me this much. But through the week, day in, day out, I can, I can just meditate on the Word. I can take in the meditation, the, the, the testimonies of the Lord. He says, the third group, so the commandments make me wiser than my enemies. My, his testimonies make me more insightful even than my teachers. And by the way, some of the best insights I have heard have come from you and not me. And thirdly, his precepts bring me more understanding than the aged. More understanding than the aged. Because I've observed your precepts. What does that mean? Well, remember we've talked about precepts before. Special word, especially for David, used by David throughout the Psalms, especially here in Psalm 119. He uses it, I think it was 12 
12 to 14 times in this psalm alone. And it's important to him, a precept is a direction given in a covenant relationship. Remember that, precept. A direction given specifically in a covenant relationship. Now if David wrote this psalm, as I believe he did, he was in a unique covenant relationship unlike any other. The Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. We looked at that, talked about it last week a little bit. The covenant God made with David. I'm going to set one of your descendants on the throne forever. Talking about Jesus. I'm going to extend your kingdom, your rule. And what's wonderful about this is it makes sense then that his precepts bring me more understanding than the aged. Why is that? Because the aged only have so far and then they die. But your precepts take me beyond that. Your precepts, the directions you've given me in this everlasting covenant goes far beyond even my own age. David could write in his old age. Psalm 16 verse 10, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. And I believe David there is talking about himself. Then he goes on and says, Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Talking about Jesus. You're not going to abandon me to Sheol because your Holy One's not going to undergo decay. Jesus, three days in the grave, rose having not decayed and is alive today. And because of that, David, David would not be abandoned to the grave. And it's marvelous, gang. This is an understanding that surpasses old age. And let me put it this way. Whatever your age is here tonight, if you have this understanding in Christ Jesus, then you know something that the most aged, learned, wise person doesn't know unless they're in Christ. If you're in Christ, you know this isn't all there is. You know, just as David knew there was now an everlasting covenant that was going to go on forever, you know you have a life that is going to go on forever. And an understanding like that changes everything. We know in Jesus, we're part of the eternal kingdom to come. Which means, honestly, no matter how bad things might get on this earth, I'm part of the eternal kingdom. I mean, how bad can it really be? It can be awful. Yeah, if you don't have the perspective of eternity with Jesus. And so he's able to say, I understand more than the aged, because I've observed your precepts, those directions in a covenant relationship, and the covenant is an eternal one. We're in a covenant relationship, right? The new covenant in his blood that is an eternal everlasting covenant and it gives us more understanding you know kids you can sit here tonight Lydia can sit here and say she has as much understanding as Pastor Rick does why? because she's in Christ and she understands what I understand that we're going to live forever so I'm going to be around with you for a long time Lydia get used to it the Davidic covenant amazing Peter said in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Does that not give direction to your life today? You know that, then everything else begins to flow in that direction. The direction of eternity with Jesus. Far more than even the wisdom and experience of an older age. Verse 101, he says, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I find this interesting. The psalmist has just flipped. What do you mean? Look at the verse again. 
I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. Well, back in Psalm 119, verse 11, look back there. He said the exact opposite. He said, Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I might not sin against you. See, there he's saying, and I believe as a younger man, I'm going to treasure your word so I will not sin. Now, as he's beginning to be an older man, he's saying, I will not sin because I treasure your word. It's the other way around. That is a dynamic that happens. It's legality turned loyalty. You know, as an early Christian, as a young Christian, I I wanted to keep God's word to keep from sinning. Now I don't want to sin because I want to keep His word. There's a joy there. There's a delight in His word that is so, so wonderful that when I have the opportunity to make a sin choice versus a biblical choice, I say, no, I want to keep that. I want to walk in His word. And so as the student of the Word progresses in the Word, he, she becomes a lover of the Word, and the Word itself starts to become motivation not to sin. I don't want to sin. Why? So I can keep the Word. He says in verse 102, I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. Best teacher, best teacher in the world, is Jesus Himself. Ask Him to teach you. I did. I do. He does not... Let us down. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. This is one of the reasons I believe it's David writing. Because he said the same thing in Psalm 19, verse 10. Same exact thing. Sweeter than honey. This is like a, this is a honey, honey book. It's a divine diet that David says he's on. The sweet, sustaining honey of the word. Sunday afternoon, I came home with a hankering for chocolate cake. We had the teacher's appreciation luncheon here, and I had something to eat here, but just enough. I was saving room because I knew what was at home. Cheryl had baked this chocolate cake, and it was calling me all through Sunday morning. I I literally had to say, no, no, chocolate cake. Yes, Jesus. No cake. Yes, Jesus. But after church, it was, yes, cake. (laughs) And so I went home with that plan my, my whole entire afternoon. I know you probably think I'm sick, but my afternoon was planned around the consumption of a big slice of chocolate cake. And I got in the house... And relaxing and starting to get things together so I could imbibe in the chocolate. And I realized it was going to be a no-go because my stomach started to ache. And I was so disappointed. I didn't care that I had a stomach ache. I cared that I had a stomach ache that was going to keep me from chocolate cake. Because that's what I was looking forward to. And I don't know what it was, a bug or something, a little 12-hour deal, but I just started feeling lousy to where I couldn't eat anything. And asked Cheryl, I was disappointed because the rest of the day I was planning to eat chocolate cake and then a a, a fun dinner and then perhaps more chocolate cake. And it ruined my day. Why am I talking about this? I I don't know if this happened to anyone else who was here for the teacher's appreciation thing. I think it was the mayonnaise that Leslie bought for those sandwiches. So if anyone else had a stomachache, talk to me. Here's my point. It happens so often in our lives that we will fill up on something such that when we come to the Word, either we're too full to digest it or it's starting to make us sick. And so we can't eat of the Word. You know, you ever consume something and it just kind of makes your stomach sour, perhaps from guilt over what you've been up to. And maybe you were planning to go to Bible study, you're planning to open up your Bible, but you've done something and now there's guilt there and you think, no, I can't sit there in church, not after this. 
That's how I felt Sunday. I can't, I can't enjoy cake, not after this, not after how I'm feeling here, this, this sourness in my stomach, this, this ache, distractions, or just chowing down on other things. I want to be with the Word of God like the psalmist, like David, like Jeremiah, who said in Jeremiah 15, 16, Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Your Word, my delight. Well, the Word gives a a completely new perspective. Fourteenth stanza. This is what I would call the Catholic stanza. It's under the word none. (laughs) How many Catholics wrote this part of the Bible? None? No, I'm kidding. The fourteenth stanza, none. The Word, my path. The Word, my path. And that, that really defines this whole section. In fact, listen to this. Your Word, as we sang, is a lamp to my feet. And a light to my path. One of the most famous verses in Scripture. One of the most memorable and memorized. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances or judgments. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Oh, accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord. Teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me. Yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I've inherited your testimony forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I've inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. The word, my path. And this is a beautiful and and highly applicable section of the psalm for our lives. And we're going to skip it, because I want to take time to tarry on this vista Sunday morning. Okay, we're going to stand on this beautiful lookout of these eight verses Sunday morning. We'll come back to it and delve deeper into its application. So 15th stanza. Now, verse 113, Samech. And again, understanding these are just Hebrew letters. They're not words that have necessarily any significance to them. They're just Hebrew letters that, that each line of each stanza begins with. So these eight verses now begin with Samech in the Hebrew. And the psalmist writes, I hate those who are double-minded but I love your law. You are my hiding place and my shield. I wait for your word. Depart from me, evildoers, that I may observe the commandments of my God. Sustain me according to your word that I may live and do not let me be ashamed of my hope. Uphold me that I may be safe, that I might have regard for your statutes continually. Gang, this section is the word of protection. The word of protection. The word is my protection. Note the descriptives here. Verse 114, my hiding place. In verse 16, my shield and sustain me. In verse 117, uphold me that I may be safe. I love how he says here in verse 116, do not let me be ashamed of my hope. You ever find yourself in that place where you're a little nervous about what the Bible teaches on something? You're thinking, okay, I want to believe this, but I don't want to be embarrassed for believing it, you know? I was that way with the rapture, to be perfectly honest. Over a decade ago, when I really studied it out and began to think, that I think this is what the Bible teaches. I really do. I think this harpazo thing, this raptus, this, this being caught up, is, is going to happen. But it was so fantastic to me, and it's still fantastic. But it was so amazing and wonderful. I, I remember thinking, boy, if I buy into this, what if I'm wrong? What, what if... Oh Lord, (laughs) do not let me be ashamed of my hope. 
Let me tell you something. After ten years of revisiting this subject over and over and over, the rapture of the church, I am not going to be ashamed of that hope. I am so convinced. And if you have any questions about that, let's sit down and talk about it and see what the whole word, not just one verse, but the whole word has to say about that marvelous truth. Do not let me be ashamed of my hope. The psalmist recognizes here that the threat in this world is double-mindedness. One of the great threats, it's, it's propaganda. You know, lies intended to sway the public mind. Flat-out deceit and dishonesty and false dealings among people. And you know what? Outside of Christ, why not? Because if you can do whatever you need to do to get your way, you need to just do it. Well, that's worldly thinking. Survival of the fittest. I mean, hey, if I'm going to buy into evolution, I'm going to buy it socially as well. I'm going to run over everybody in my path, and I'm going to survive, buddy. But that's not what the Word teaches. It's the mentality of the world. A double-minded mentality. That you can go one way, but if it's not working for you, go another. Gang, yes, there is truth. But that truth is in the Word and the Spirit of God. Truth that, that shields and sustains and upholds, protecting us, literally, against this double-mindedness in the world around us. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Well, to be pure in heart literally means to be single-hearted. The Word invites you to that. Be single-hearted rather than double-minded. You want to be pure in heart? It means sticking with the truth, walking the straight line, as opposed to back and forth and bouncing around. You want to know how how James defines double-mindedness? He gives it a one-word definition. Doubt. Wait a minute. I've, I've doubted. Follow me through with this. James 1.6, James writes, The one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now here's the thing, and I've thought about this a lot over the years. I think in the church we have done a disservice when we okie-dokie doubt. That we came along, and I've heard it from the pulpit, and I may have spoken it from the pulpit years ago. And if I have, I repent of that. I don't remember. But this whole idea of, hey, doubting's okay. Doubting's cool. God understands if you doubt Him. Just go ahead and doubt. Doubt your way to faith. I don't see it working like that. And James says doubt just develops double-mindedness. I think I believe God. I'm just not sure. So I'm going to be over here. I'm not sure. So I'll be over here. And back and forth you go. If you're in doubt, hear me on this. If you're in doubt, work it out. Okay? But don't sit there and extol the virtues of doubting God at every turn because it is not a virtuous direction. It will lead you into confusion and double-mindedness. But Rick, how do I deal with doubts? Well, listen. Elijah saw doubt itself as devastating to the people of Israel. Here's how you deal with doubt. Elijah, 1 Kings 18.21, called all the people there to Mount Carmel. And you know the scene there is marvelous, and we won't get into that whole story. We'll do that in Israel a year from March. Okay? But Elijah called all the people, and he came near them, and he said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal is God, follow Him. But the people did not answer him a word. How do I deal with doubt? Face the truth of the Scripture. 
Accept the Word of God as it stands. The Word is my protection against double-mindedness, against doubt, against the devastation that comes from it. The Word of God. The problem with doubting in the church is, is that there's too much conversation about it. You know, the emerging church, that's one of their favorite words. Let's have a conversation. Let's just discuss and we'll talk about it. We'll open the Word. What does the Word say about it? It is such a simple answer to doubt. I'm just not sure about this particular theology. What does the Word say? If you'll take the time to read it, there's your answer. Doubt gone. Move on. Doubt is not, gang, a virtuous thing. It leads to double-mindedness. Verse 118. He says, You have rejected all those who wander from your statutes, for their deceitfulness is useless. You have removed all the wicked from the earth like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Not a bad thing to fear the Lord. Not a bad thing to be afraid of His judgments. Not a bad thing to fear that were I to be truly judged by the Lord the way I deserve, I would not be in heaven. It's not bad to be in that place of having a healthy, holy fear of the Lord. And once we understand the extent of His righteousness and His judgments, boy, His grace should make us tremble. We should be breathless at the thought that He has chosen to save us and not because of ourselves. Notice in verse 119, it's interesting, he mentions you have removed all the wicked of the earth like dross or dross. And that's a a prophetic verse. Obviously the wicked of the earth are still here. Obviously there's still a lot of evil and pain and sin and wickedness on this planet. He's going to remove it. It will be gone. Like dross. What is dross? Perhaps you know this. The Hebrew word is sig. Sig, and it literally means waste or scum that forms on the surface of molten metal, usually silver. The dross of silver. And what happens is a silversmith would heat up the silver until it becomes liquid, and then the dross, the impurities, float up to the top and can be skimmed off to purify the silver. Biblically, dross portrays wickedness. Scum. Scum of the earth, you could say. The wickedness of dross. Proverbs 25 verse 4 says, Take away the dross from the silver, and there comes out a vessel for the smith. Take away the wicked before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Proverbs 26 verse 23 says, Like an earthen vessel overlaid with silver, dross are burning lips and a wicked heart. Burning lips and a wicked heart is silver that has dross in it. So dross is a picture there of of wickedness or of evil. But... It's not only the abject wicked, because we find that dross has another reference. The root word literally means backslider. The root word dross, seek, means to fall away or to backslide. And that's how it's used by Isaiah. Over in Isaiah chapter 1, if you want to go there, you can, just a couple of books over. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 22. Isaiah prophesying to the people of Israel, to Zion. And he says, actually in verse 21, I'll pick it up reading there, how the faithful city has become a harlot. She was full of justice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. 
Your silver has become dross. Your drink diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Therefore the Lord God of hosts, the Mighty One of Israel, declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. And after that, after that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. That's interesting to me. Dross then has two applications. It can be the wicked as God removes them from the earth, but it can also refer to the scum that He wants to remove from His people that they might be pure. Think about how scummy we all are outside of Christ. And He is the smelter, is purifying. And that purifying means sometimes we've got to go through the heat. He's got to turn it up a bit that we will melt down like molten, that, that the dross can rise to the surface and, and He clears it away. Not only is He going to clear the wicked out of the world, He's going to clear the wicked out of me. And for that, I'm eternally thankful. Ma- uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 3 says, He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. And He's purifying you And He's purifying me as well. Verse 121. We continue on. So the 15th stanza is the protection now. The 16th stanza, Ayin in the Hebrew, the word of my pledge. My pledge. The word of my pledge. He writes, verse 121, I have done justice and righteousness. That word justice is literally judgment. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. Deal with your servant according to your loving kindness, your grace, and teach me your statutes. That, by the way, is great prayer for any follower of Jesus Christ. Deal with your servant according to grace and teach me your statutes. And he says, I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, because they have broken your law. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above fine gold. Therefore, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. I hate every false way. The word of my pledge. A bit of trivia, by the way, that may not be so trivial after all. Verse 122 is the only verse in the entire psalm that does not contain a synonym for God's Word. Synonym. You know, it doesn't contain the word law, or word, or precept, or ordinance, or judgment, or statute, or any of those ten. And we, we looked at ten of them on Sunday. It doesn't contain any, every other verse in Psalm 119. 175 out of 176 verses contain a synonym reference to the Word of God. Verse 122 does not. Why is that? Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. It's significant, gang, because the Bible is not our pledge. What do you mean? The Bible is not our pledge. Our surety. That, the word surety 
It means a pledge, a guarantee, an assurance. And the Bible is not that. It is not our assurance. When we talk about our pledge, it's not the word that maintains our pledge, our assurance of eternal salvation. What? What do you mean? Gang, what does the Bible tell us is our pledge of our salvation? Any guesses? What is the pledge of your salvation, Ryan? Spirit. The Spirit is our pledge. And so here we have the one verse in the entire psalm that doesn't refer directly to the Word of God. And it's the one verse that talks about our pledge, our surety, which is not the Word of God. Wonderful though it may be, it's the Spirit of God. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him you also, talking to Gentiles, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. The Word is not my pledge. The Spirit is. But the Word points me to the Spirit, doesn't it? The Word tells me of the Spirit. The Word directs me to the Spirit of Jesus Christ who is my pledge. How many of you think the Lord is about to act? The psalmist says this in, in this section that, that's dealing with our surety, our pledge. He says down there in verse 126, It is time for the Lord to act for they have broken your law. I look around and I see the world getting worse. And I see the law broken right and left. The law of God, the judgments of God, the truth of God, it is getting worse. The Lord is about to act. I agree with the psalmist. It's time. I pray that sometimes. Lord, it's just time for you to act. And he says, Rick, I know this better than you. And I say, I know. (laughs) But it sure seems right to me that it is time that the Lord is going to act. And the question is, how would you rather live? Guessing? In the face of any sudden action of the Lord, guessing about your salvation or assured of your salvation. Having the pledge of your salvation. I probably don't need to do this with you all here midweek, but I will anyway. Often I have said, you should know that you know that you know that you're saved. And if you don't, then you need to ask the Lord to give you the pledge of your salvation, which is His Spirit. In fact, Romans 8.16 tells us, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, I know I'm a child of God. Why? His Spirit tells me I am. And I'm confident in that. I have no doubt. No question. I've had friends of mine talking about the, the idea of the rapture of the church and the following tribulation. Friends saying, well, maybe we won't all be raptured and some of us will be left. And we'll be left here to fight the battle, to fight the good fight. And I think that is so stupid. You know? I mean, bravado. Hey, let's be the Christian fighting in the tribulation. You don't want to be. You're just going to be wiped out. We are not as strong as we think we are. But sometimes I think that comes from the place of just not being sure. A little unsure. Again, doubt. Double-minded. Questioning back and forth instead of saying, Lord, I want to be sure of my salvation. If you are not sure tonight, then you turn to Jesus tonight and you say, Lord, I give you my heart, I give you my life, I pray for the pledge of my salvation. Assure me, Father. The word is assuring. John even says these words were written so that you may know that you have eternal life. But until the Spirit is in your life, you're going to have some question about it. Because the Spirit 
is the pledge. The Spirit is the pledge. Down in uh, verse 129, the next stanza, the word of passion. The word of passion. Watch this. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul observes them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple, to which I say, hallelujah. I opened my mouth wide and panted, for I longed for your commandments. And that would be a little embarrassing, you know? I mean, talk about being head over heels. <laughs> I'm just going to learn what I have to you know <laughs> But that's what he's describing. <laughs> the Word. When was the last time you panted for the Word of God? You know, it's, it's funny. I see it happen from time to time. I see people who who perhaps... And, and I, please don't take this the wrong way. I'm not extolling the virtues of the Bridge Christian Fellowship. But I see people come for the first time, maybe coming out of a church where there was very little or no teaching of the Bible, and sit down, and five minutes into the teaching of the Word, I see people weeping. They're panting for the Word. Realizing how hungry, how thirsty, how desirous of the Word of truth they truly were, they truly are. This Word is a passionate Word. And the psalmist goes on, he says, Turn to me and be gracious to me after your manner with those who love your name. Establish my footsteps in your Word. Do not let any iniquity have dominion over me. Redeem me from the oppression of man that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your statutes. He says, oh, verse 136, My eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. The passion of the psalmist here. The impact of the Word of God on the psalmist was absolute passion. He's panting for the Word. He's loving even the name spoken of God. And... He's weeping for those who don't know the satisfaction and satiation of the Word. So passionate is He about the truth of God that when He knows of those who are not in the Word, who don't have access to the Word, it causes Him to weep streams of water from His eyes. Psalm 42, verse 1, David writes, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. But what's amazing is, gang, what generates this passion here is the Word of God. The Word is generating this passion in the heart. Why? How does a book do that? I'll tell you how. Because the author of the book was passionate for you and passionate for me before we ever knew him. Because the author, the the writer of this book, God Himself, is passionate. Is a lover. Do you read Scripture that way? Do you read it as the words of a God who loves you? Boy, I think that would really alter our perception, our understanding of God's Word. If we opened it up and said, okay, He loves me. And this is from Him to me because He loves me so much. What does He have to say? It changes my perspective of the Word, my understanding. God, John 3.16 tells us, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Don't skip past that. God so loved. He so loved. John says in 1 John 3.16, we know love by this, 
that He laid down His life for us. Now that is passion. I'll take the grenade. I will jump in the line of fire. I'll take the cross for you. Why would you do that, God? Because I love you. Because I am that passionate for you. And so the Word, it brings this passion out of us because it's from a passionate God Himself. And we see that flowing even in the tears of the psalmist. The next stanza, the 18th one, Sad, is the word Sad. And Sad is interesting because this section, you could say the word of pure righteousness. I couldn't find a better word than righteousness. So we're saying with the P's that we're using, you know, kind of as an acrostic through this. The word of pure righteousness. This 18th octave opens up with the word righteous. You see it there in verse 137. Righteous. It's the Hebrew word Sadiq. So, that letter Sad spells, begins the word Sadiq. So it's a, it's a good way to remember that this section is about righteousness because Sadiq is the word for righteousness. If you spell it out there, and you might even want to spell it right in your, in your scriptures, it's T-S-A-D... D-I-Y-Q Sadiq. That's a kind of a transliteration of the Hebrew. This whole section here talks about the purely righteous Word of God. Now think about that. His Word is righteous, verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. The purely righteous Word of God. And that's all he's going to talk about for the next eight verses. How righteous the Word is. You know what that means? You don't need a Brita filter to read the Word of God. You don't need any filter because it is absolutely, purely righteous. I don't know about you, but with every other book I read, I have to ask, what does the author believe? Where's this guy coming from? Where, what's her background? I'm curious of these things because as I read a book, words are coming off the page and embedding themselves into my heart and into my mentality and into my thinking. And I want to know where they're coming from. And so I'm I'm more and more cautious the older I get. As I'm reading, whether it's a novel or a magazine or a book of some kind, Christian books, if it's written by man, I'm asking, what's he getting at? Where's she trying to take me here? Even if it's fiction... What's the purpose? Am I going to find something on the next page that's offensive? I remember Cheryl and I went to the, the little town of Middleton, uh, Virginia. And one of our days off driving around, and we went into Middleton and walked into a little bookstore, and I saw, uh, what was it, the, uh, I forget the whole title, but it was something, something Owen Meany. Maybe you read that book. A Prayer for Owen Meany. And I had read in a Christian magazine a review on the book that said it was phenomenal. Oh, i got to pick this up. So I bought the book there and I started reading it and I really enjoyed it. They made the movie... Um, <laughs> what's the movie called? Remember, Cheryl? They changed Owen Meany. It's a different name. It's about the little kid. Anyway, doesn't matter. I start reading this book and I'm really into it. I get a third into it. And this is great. This is really good. I turn the page. F. The F-bomb goes off. Oh, man. All right. Read on. And again. And again. And again. And I had to close the book and throw it away. And you know, you get, you get other reading of any kind, and I, I find myself asking, you know, I've got to have a filter here. got to have the guard up. Not with the Word of God. No filter needed. I just read it. Why? It's purely righteous. There is nothing wrong in the Word of God. He writes, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness. Sadiq. 
and exceeding faithfulness. My zeal has consumed me because my adversaries have forgotten your words. Your word is very pure. Therefore, your servant loves it. I love it. I don't have to change a thing. I don't have to, you know, I'll take this but not that. Boy, I'll tell you what, people who do that, side note, how can you read the Word of God and say, I'll accept this, but I don't believe that? If there's one verse in the Word of God that you can't accept, then you shouldn't accept any of it. Because it, it would invalidate the whole thing. Because right here it claims absolute, perfect righteousness. Purity is this word. Your word is very pure, and your servant loves it. 141, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have come upon me, yet your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding, he says, that I may live. So righteous and pure is God's word. The, the psalmist here is able to say, when I think about my adversaries who have forgotten your word, it just, it eats me up. Who would that be? Who would be the adversaries who have forgotten the word that, that the psalmist is thinking about? Well, if the psalmist is David, I wonder perhaps it was Absalom. Or maybe he was thinking about Ahithophel. Or maybe... David, again, if he wrote this, was, was thinking about people in his older age, in his latter years, people who turned against him, even though they knew he was anointed by God. People who turned against him, even though they knew there was a Davidic covenant that had been given. These people who should have known the promises, but were turning against God's word. But notice the psalmist, he aches for them. He's not angry at them. He's not bitter toward them. He just, he just aches for them. 2 Samuel 18.33 The king David was deeply moved and he went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. Remember how he ached over the death of his son Absalom? As he walked, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Who do you love so much that you ache over them not knowing the Word? We talk about evangelism. And for evangelism to happen, I think we have to ache over the person. I think we have to recognize their lostness and love them enough that we ache and are spurred on to share the truth of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in Romans 9 verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. I wish that I I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites. Because gang, the pure rightness of the word it doesn't increase judgment. The pure rightness of the word increases compassion. If Bible study is causing me to look down my nose at people who don't get the Word, I'm not getting the Word. If Bible study makes me more judgmental and self-righteous, I'm not studying the Word right. Something's wrong. Because as the psalmist, you know, back up in verse 136, my eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. It tore him up. 
And if we're in the Word, like He was in the Word, it's going to develop and increase our compassion for people, our love for people, our desire to see people saved. 19th stanza, verse 145. Quaff. Quaff. This is the word is prayed. The next word candidate define this for us. Prayed. Look at verse 145. I cried with all my heart. Answer me, O Lord. I will observe your statutes. I cried to you, save me, and I shall keep your testimonies. I rise, verse 147, before dawn and cry for help. I wait for your words. My eyes anticipate the night watches that I may meditate on your word. Hear my voice according to your loving kindness. Revive me, O Lord, according to your ordinances. Those who follow after wickedness draw near. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Of old, I have known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. There's a wonderful dynamic here that the word underlines, and that's simply this. God's word draws out my words. God's word draws out my words. What do you mean? I mean, if you want to learn how to pray, the Word is the best way. If you want to deepen your prayer life, deepen your time in the Word. Get into the Bible. In this little section, we hear the psalmist describing in verse 145, he describes how he prayed. Crying with all his heart. In verses 146 and again 149 and 150, he describes what he prayed for. Save me. Save me, Lord. In verse 147, he describes when he prayed, that is, rising before the dawn. And he also described how long he prayed, which was all the way into the night watches. Verse 148. This whole section is prayer, 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 prayer. And he's, he comes to it because of the motivation of the Word of God. The Word is a great teacher on how to pray. On developing and, and that, that desire to pray. Let me ask you, do you rise early or do you look forward to the night watches to pray? I told Cheryl, not last night, but the night before last, I woke up at 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m., and 5 a.m. And about 5 a.m., I, I laid there thinking, I wonder if God wants me to pray. <laughs> it took me several wake-ups, you know, to get to that point. Do you look forward to those quiet times in the evening when you can just pray? Are you up early before the dawn to pray? Do you look forward to that? You know, the Jews divided the night into three four-hour watches. From 6 to 10 p.m. was the first watch. From 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. was the second watch. And then from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. is the third watch of the night. So when Jesus was walking on the water and He came walking in the third watch of the night, it was between 2 and 6 a.m. No wonder they were freaked out. They were out of their minds with exhaustion. But I find this interesting. Luke 12, verse 37. Jesus giving a familiar parable, but there's a different spin on it. He says, Blessed are those slaves whom the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly I say to you that He will gird Himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. I love that. Jesus saying, when the Master comes, if you're serving and He finds you so doing... He's going to seat you at the table and He, Jesus, is going to serve you. I can't even imagine. It's like Peter saying, Oh, no, 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 no. No, don't wash my feet, Lord. 
And Jesus says, well, then you can't have any part of me. And, Je- and Peter says, well, then wash all of me. And Jesus says, in essence, ooh. <laughs> but he says, <laughs> he says, blessed are those who the Master finds so doing. But then he says this verse, I never saw this before, Luke twelve thirty eight. whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. People who are serving the Lord in the second or third watch of the night. People who, like the psalmist, are anticipating the night watches. This is, this is great. Verse 148, it's like a watchman's prayer. The watchman on the wall, stationed there on the wall of Jerusalem, watching at night, but looking forward to it because it's quiet, no one's around, and while you're watching on the wall, you can just be in prayer. You're alone with the Lord. And that's the picture that he's painting here. As he describes not only how or what, when, how long, but also finally he describes why he prayed. Verse 151, You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Of old I have known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. In other words, the psalmist's prayer life is deeply rooted in his word life. talk a lot about our prayer life in the church. Do we talk about our word life? The time we spend in the Word and and pouring over the Word. The psalmist says, I've known this. I have known this Word for a long, 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 long time. Of old I have known your testimonies. And there's part of the recognition that as we get to the latter section of the psalm, the psalmist himself is older now. Remember when we opened this up, we said perhaps David kept a scroll with him throughout his whole life because the early part of the psalm is passionate like a young buck. The old part of the psalm is older and wiser as he's looking back and recognizing all that God has done. And even right here saying, Of old I have known your testimonies. And that is key. The young people especially get this. This is absolutely key. The language of faith is not instantaneous. The language of faith is a long distance run. And so we learn it across time. Jesus says, Luke 21.33, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. So young people, let me just say this to you again. If the Lord should wait another 50 years to come, may you all be able to say, as the psalmist says, of old I have known your testimonies. 20th stanza. 20th stanza. Resh is the Hebrew letter. And here we find the word is practiced. The word is practiced. 153. Look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. You know why we keep coming back again and again and again and again and again to the word as we gather? Because we forget. We forget. He says... I do not forget your law. Well, how how do you keep from forgetting His law? You keep revisiting it. You stay in it. You read it again and again, over and over. The Word is practiced. Unless, of course, you have a photographic memory. You know, total recall. At any point, you can go, ping, and speak a verse. Speak the Word. You know the Word that well. (laughs) The rest of us have to come back to it again and again. Because we forget. Where was that? What was that section on what happens after you die? I mean, I think I remember, but what, where? So I go back to the Word. And I practice the Word. 
and I read the Word, and I rehearse the Word, and the Word gets seated into my life. Verse 154, plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me or bring me back to life. Quicken me according to Your Word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek Your statutes. Great are Your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to Your ordinances. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from Your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them because they do not keep Your Word. Consider how I love Your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to Your loving kindness. And he says, verse 160, the sum of Your Word is truth. What does that mean? It means add it all up and you get truth. Perfect righteousness, absolute truth. And every one of Your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Three times in this octave alone, The psalmist says, revive me, revive me, revive me. He says, according to your word, revive me. He says, according to your ordinances, revive me. And thirdly, he says, according to your loving kindness, revive me. I point that out because the cry for personal revival, the psalmist saying revive me, it happens 14 times in the psalms. Twelve of those cries for revival are in Psalm 119. Well, we're right here, directly connected to the Word of God, because without the Word of God, you do not have revival. Without the Word of God, there is no life. And those who would claim that they have great revival, but the Bible is not mentioned, or hardly, are not having revival. Because revival is directly connected to the Word which brings life. Jesus said in Matthew 22:31, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? That would be His Word saying, quote, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Jesus says, He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. He's the God who brings life. And there is nothing about this Word that is dead. Tragically, I've heard a lot of dead sermons. I've probably given a few. I've, I've sat in Bible classes where guys taught and... I can't even stay awake. This is not a dead word. This is a living word, an active word. It brings life to the dying and rejuvenation to the dull of heart. And if we approach it any other way, we're missing the truth that is, that is found here. But if you want life in the word, it's got to be practiced. It's not the word that's lacking. We're the ones who are lacking. And so we practice the word and the word brings life. 21st stanza. Shin. 21st stanza. And I love, watch this, how the psalm concludes with the last two stanzas. Second to last one, the word, the word, the word is peace. The word is peace. Verse 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. I hate and despise falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day, he says, I praise you. Because of your righteous ordinances, Hayden asked me today, is the number seven important in the Bible? Oh, yeah. And he goes, why? Because God just kind of likes seven? (laughs) I said, no, no. Seven is that number of completion. You know, God completed. He finished the world in six days and rested on the seventh. So the seventh is that picture of completion. The Sabbath being on the seventh day. 
And you can track seven throughout the Scriptures. And here the psalmist says, seven times a day, I praise you. He's talking about total, complete praise. I'm just praising God all the time because of your righteous ordinances. He says, those, watch this, those who love your law have great peace. And nothing causes them to stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies, and I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and your testimonies, for all my ways are before you. The word is peace. How many times a day do you worship God? Now the psalmist says seven. And he's not lying because he's inspired by the Spirit to write what he's writing, so we know it's true. Seven times a day, complete praise. You might say, yeah, well, back when he wrote, there wasn't so much to do. Things were not as busy back then. Well, again, assuming this is David writing, he would have been, at this point, king over united Israel, the entire country. Ever been king of a country? And you think you have a busy schedule? Ever been attacked on all sides by enemies? And you think you've ever written the number of songs that David wrote? And you think you have a busy schedule? I mean, how much time could David possibly have had on his hands? But he was at peace, and especially with those who were persecuting him, without cause. Why? Because he was in the Word. He says, I'm in the Word. Those who love your law have great peace. And nothing, nothing, listen, nothing causes them to stumble. And I I have to wonder about that because I still stumble. You know when I'm most likely to stumble? When I'm not in the Word. Because those who are in your Word do not stumble. We're not going to trip, we're not going to fall, we're not going to sin when we're in the Word. I mean, it's very hard to carry a Bible into a bar. You know, I'm just going to sit down and meditate for a bit, bring me a beer. It's very hard to go sit there in, in a... I don't know. I mean, I hate coming up with examples because they're all stupid. There are so many examples of places that we go and things we do where we wouldn't take a Bible. And yet if we had the Word with us and we were walking along reading it and we came up to the establishment, we'd say, I'm not going in there. Why? Because the Word keeps me from stumbling. If I'm in the Word, I'm not going to stumble. Nothing causes them to stumble. The word stumble there is mishkol in the Hebrew and it literally means an offense. An offense. The psalmist is at peace. Listen, he's at peace. Even though he's afflicted, he's at peace in the Word and nothing, nothing offends him. Nothing offends him. i got to admit, King, I get offended all the time. I do, and I share it in here. Movies that offend me, books that offend me, politicians that offend me. I am always finding myself offended. And this is one of those aha moments for Rick this week. I get offended at the behavior of non-Christians all the time. Hear about that show Glee? I've heard about this show. And it's like, apparently all the stars in the show appeared nude in a magazine. I mean, it's just, it's not a good thing. And it offends me. It comes on the TV, it offends me. I just get offended by all these things. I heard a phrase last week, i got to pass along. And, and when I think about the fact that if I have great peace in the law, nothing's going to cause me offense. I'm not going to be offended. Here's the phrase, I, I love this. Too many of us try to clean the fish before we catch them. Too many of us try to clean the fish before we catch them. 
What are you saying? I'm saying, what do we expect from people who don't know Jesus? Why are we so offended at the non-believing world who don't know what they're missing? Who don't realize what they don't have? Who are outside of Christ in captivity to the enemy and in many cases unaware and yet we're offended by it. I'm offended at that. Well, maybe I need not be so offended. What do we expect from those who don't know righteousness? What, what do you think Hollywood is going to give when they don't know about His faithfulness, His goodness, His mercy, His trustworthiness? Were we all that righteous and good and merciful and trustworthy before we got caught? See, that's the wonder of salvation. God catches us and then He cleans us. He was willing to catch us in our filth. Scaly, scummy. Anna Marie had some fish that, that Bill caught the other day and she ate it. She loves fish. She left the plate in the sink. It was disgusting. Grayish scales sticking to everything. You know, that was me before Jesus caught me and He cleaned me and He made me whole. And it gives me, again, a, a different appreciation for people who are not saved. They need to be caught. Jesus will do the cleaning. They need to be caught. And we're not going to clean them. And we're not going to catch them by, by going up and saying, Look, dude, you've got to get your life together, sinner. I find your entire behavior and demeanor offensive. Therefore, you need what I have. I mean, it doesn't work that way. But going up to someone and saying, You know, there's someone who loves you. Not being so easily offended. That, that's what I'm saying. The Word brings peace. Peace that doesn't bring offense. We see Jesus the Word who exemplified peace even in the hardest and harshest of persecutions who was at peace with everyone. Sinners coming up to Him. You know, drunks and, and, and prostitutes and thieves coming up to Him. and He wasn't always at offense. He wasn't taking offense. Oh, oh no, get Him away from me. The, the Pharisees were. Remember, the Pharisees were looking at everybody coming up to Jesus and going, does he have any idea who these people are? And Jesus said, you remember? It's not the healthy who need a physician. It's the sick. Don't be so easily offended. The Word brings peace. Jesus said, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And so in addition to swearing off the news for the next week, I don't want to be offended all the time. I want to see the world through Jesus' eyes. I want to have the peace of Christ. And I'll tell you, the Word generates it. The Word brings peace. And finally, stanza number 22, Tav. The last letter of the Hebrew alphabet and the last stanza of the psalm, the Word of Praise. Let my cry come before You, O Lord. Give me understanding according to Your Word. Let my supplication come before You. Deliver me according to Your Word. Let my lips utter praise. For You teach me Your statutes. Let my tongue sing of Your Word. For all Your commandments are righteousness. Let Your hand be ready to help me. For I have chosen Your precepts. I long for Your salvation, O Lord. And Your law is my delight, verse 175, let my soul live that it may praise You. 
and let your ordinances help me. Let your ordinances help me. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. For I do not, or so, I do not forget your commandments. The ultimate effect of the Word of God, as as the psalmist writes here, later in life, it all comes together and it lands in the place of praise. The ultimate effect of the Word of God is the worship of God. That's that's why we did that exercise the last several months of switching around, word first, worship second. That's why we're still doing it first hour on Sunday morning. So if if you're coming second hour and you miss that, come first hour. Because we sing a song and then we get right into the Word and then we worship. Because the Word (laughs) brings the worship. The Word causes me to want to worship the Lord. It gets into our hearts and gang. Once the Word is in, the worship becomes uncontainable. Have you found, even as we've been reading through this psalm or perhaps some of the others, that you desire to simply say, Hallelujah! Praise God! I mean, that's just amazing. You're awesome, Father. Hallelujah. The psalmist says, let my cry come before you. Let my supplication come before you. He says, let my lips utter praise. Let my tongue sing of your word. It was Monday morning during silent reading time at O'Neill Elementary School. Monday morning, I was 10 years old, the the day before I got baptized. And Monday morning, for the first time, I ventured to take my Bible to school. Because I was determined to read the Bible during silent reading time. I had no idea how long it really was. (laughs) So in Genesis, and after 20 minutes, I was like, Genesis chapter 1, verse 4. (laughs) We're done? I was a slow reader in those days. I didn't get most of what I read. At 16, I knew my calling. It's another story for another time. But the Word meant even more to me as a 16-year-old. At 24, I started into my first full-time ministry job, and suddenly the Word became even more valuable to me. It was a textbook to what I was doing. At 37, the Lord stirred my heart like He never had before, and everything changed. The Word that was important to me as a 10-year-old and valuable to me as as a 16-year-old and even more important to me and impressive as a 24-year-old, now at 37, suddenly I I, I heard my calling. God said, I want you to teach this. And to teach it, you need to be in it. Or at least I want you to be a tour guide. (laughs) Gang, that was 37. At 46, this Word means more to me today than it did at 37, than it did at 24, than it did at 16, than it did at 10. It continues to mean more and more and more to me. I love His Word. I just love the Word. Now I was asked this week, in fact just yesterday, why does the Bible mean so much to you? Why is it so important to you? Why do you love it so much? I'll tell you why. It's because of the author. And it's because I finally realized, even though I taught it years ago, it finally got into my heart that this is a series of love letters. That's what it is. It's God saying, you know how much I love you? Let me tell you. Let me show you. That's why Bible study is so important, because it's love letters 
from the Father to His children. Let my soul live that it may praise You and let Your ordinances help me. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek Your servant for I do not forget Your commandments. It's a fitting conclusion to an epic, emotional, and affectionate psalm. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You've written this letter to us. We pour over it, Father, not that we might be worshipers of the Word, but worshipers of our Lord who gave us His Word, who spoke us His Word. We worship and love the Word made flesh, the person of Jesus. Lord Jesus, we love You. And it's again because You have chosen to love us so much. And we see this in Scripture. May we see it more. Unless You choose, Lord, to come tomorrow and then may we just see You forever and ever praising You. And we do so now, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.